Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. What are the two things that you don't talk about, like at parties or in mixed company? Religion and politics. All right, so today we're going to talk about both. But don't walk out on me or tune me out just yet. We're going to talk about them to the extent that Jesus does. Because right here, right here at the beginning, let me make this clear. This is not some topical choice I have landed on. Timberline is faithful to follow the gospel of Mark through everything that Jesus said and did. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to find himself facing another trap. And he ans- the answer that he provides, it's not a detailed lesson on the dynamics of church and state. Don't get me wrong, we will talk about it. We will make some implications. We will draw some principles from what Jesus says here, as well as how it lines up with the rest of scripture. But we need to know, this is another trap question from the same people that were trying to trap Jesus in Pastor Donnie's message last weekend, and the same people that are gonna keep at it, trapping Jesus in Pastor Brent's message next weekend. And Jesus's response here is a quick, clever response that reveals he does not intend the primary gotcha issue, the one that his enemies finally use to destroy him. He does not intend for that to be merely a political reason. So before you straighten up in your seat and get ready to evaluate whether whatever I have to say lines up with what you want to hear, or feel like maybe from past experiences that sermons never go far enough. Can I propose, we've had a lot of good, sweet opportunities to come alongside of God in prayer. Prayer aligning our hearts with God, and I wanna make sure, especially before we go into this topic, that's what we're doing. So once more, I hope you're not tired of coming to the Spirit in prayer. I want us to actually pray ahead of this message. Join me in this. Father, we do not gather just to hear opinions or hot takes. There are other sources that we go to for that. Holy Spirit, we come to hear your voice. And Jesus, I pray that at least for now that all else would fade away. Amen. Mark 12 Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Er, Nope. Mark very clearly tells us their intentions here are false. They do not believe that he truly teaches the way of God. They're they're trying to kind of form the narrative around him like, hey, hey, new guy, 
We know you don't care about anyone's opinion. It, it kind of reminds me what the demons were trying to do back in the, the start of Mark's gospel when Jesus steps on the scene and they took control or tried to take control of the initiative saying, are you here to destroy us? Notice how whenever Jesus' enemies come against him, they come against him with, with claims that kind of make him look like he's in a bad light. You're a destroyer. You don't care about anyone's opinions. When someone comes up against you with a false narrative, a prejudice about you, they already have a label about who you are and, and where your motives lie. I want you to recognize it's already not a fair fight. That's a, that's a conflict that, that is not going to be fought or won with conventional weapons like logical defense or rebuttal. You're going to have to find another way through that. So with false motives and false authenticity, here comes the trap question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? <laughs> We're so clever. We're going to trap Jesus. I, I, I can just see these guys like huddling together and, and rubbing their hands going, we're going to make him choose. We're going to make him pick a side. Either he's going to tell the people to rebel against Caesar and then Rome will do our dirty work, or he's going to be pro-paying taxes to this pagan government and no one likes a pro-Roman spiritual leader. Mwahaha. <laughs> Because nobody likes taxes. If I get an amen in any part of this service, I bet I get one after that. Nobody likes taxes. But more than that, this particular tax to Caesar represented both spiritual idolatry, seeing as how it was the image of a man idolatrized on that coin, and also enemy rule. There was an inscription of pagan allegiance. The coin itself represented unrighteous government. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And this is a little bit of a timeout. Can we notice that the fact that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders went away and found one of these coins, the fact that they had one, isn't that showing that they were already participating in the Roman social order? Hypocrisy. Every line of scripture can tell us something. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this, holding up this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus is too clever to get caught in their trap. And even though it will be these guys to whom Jesus eventually falls into, Jesus does not intend on the definitive issue, the one that finally does him in. Jesus does not intend that merely being a political one. If we can remember what I shared at the beginning, that Jesus' response here is a quick clever response, not a detailed expansion on the dynamics of church and state, if we can remember that, then I still think we're well postured to avoid just opinions and hot takes and, 
and hear what God has to say about how he intends his people to live and work in the world in which we find ourselves. So let's turn to some of those implications that I said that we'll talk a little bit about. First off, please avoid making the mistake that the Bible, and then by extension our faith, is not political. Of course it is. It's very political. Your faith better inform your politics, local, national, and global. Your faith better inform how you as a believer are going to decide, how do I carry myself, especially in this next election year of 2024? Your faith better be at the heart of that. If your faith is the thing that determines your values, your worldview, and your actions, and you are blessed enough to live in a society that that allows you the responsibility, the opportunity, the freedom to actually have a say in what happens, then yes, your faith is very political. It forms everything. Your faith should impact not just your participation in politics, but your whole life. Jesus said, give to God what belongs to God. It's all God's for the life of a believer. That's what I love that we've, we've underscored already from what we heard from Tyler in worship. Furthermore, there's no room in Jesus' response here where he's evaluating the unjust or just nature of the Roman society, the Roman state. Jesus is not here or elsewhere establishing a political opposition to Caesar. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? The implication here is yes. Yes, continue civil participation, even to Rome, with, this is an added added facet to his answer that, that they didn't ask for, with the addition the transcendence of giving God what belongs to him. What has his likeness and bears his image. Well, what would that be? People. All people. It's kind of like this. Caesar can have his taxes. I want you to give me your whole life. See why they marveled at him? He just navigated church and state, religion and politics, and somehow came out on the other side, implying both civil participation and spiritual devotion. Because his movement isn't primarily political. I didn't say his movement isn't political. I said his movement isn't primarily political. Then yes, pay your taxes adding the transcendence of rendering to God what belongs to God. Throughout the world, the church recognizes some level of distinction between matters of the church and matters of the state. Where you find extremism is when the state or the church forces one facet to subsume the other. By the way, when this has happened historically with the church, it's the state the power of a totalitarian state that dilutes or corrupts the church. So our track record isn't that great on this. So yes, even to your hated enemy of Rome, with their idolatrous coins, pay your taxes. Continue civil participation, all the while remembering 
whose likenesses it is that you bear, who your allegiance is most profoundly to, what, what implications that has for your life and your participation. And they marveled at him. They marveled at this answer. And like we've said before, and like we'll keep saying up until the point where they finally arrest him, they'll be back. When you want to understand this trap question in its context, I want us all to know and see that Caesar wasn't just the man, big brother. This isn't just pay your taxes to the man. Caesar was not just the man in power. Caesar was the enemy. And the shocking thing about the countercultural movement that Jesus is launching with the coming of the kingdom is that it aims to take on the biggest enemies the world has to offer. I find it shocking every time I recall when is it that Jesus decided to make his landing on earth? He could have come at any time, in any era, in any geographical location. Why did he choose that time, that place, that moment. When Jesus chose to come into the world, when the time had fully come, as Galatians 4 tells us, it was at the precise point in history when the world's biggest, most oppressive force was in charge. And not only that did Jesus choose to come during that period of time, he cho chose to place himself in the very hotbed center where there was this immense clash between the people of God, Israel, and an enormous bully, Rome. And even in such an oppressive society, the counterculture approach of Jesus that he intended was not isolationist or crusading, nor was it enabling or conforming. What Jesus was introducing was surpassing. It was indefensible. We just sang in a song, you have no rival, no equal. It takes down powers and principalities from the inside out. Because I'm already in trouble for talking about the church and state, religion and politics, I'm gonna double down here. I wanna look at another example of how the church comes against the biggest bullies, the biggest enemies that the world has to offer us and wins. Acts 19 is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. Um, some of you have heard a message on this in the past and so it's the Bible, it's likely to repeat from time to time so that we can remember it. But when I think of first century Ephesus, I think of Vegas. Wanton sexuality, frenzied crowds, dark plays for people's minds and wallets and souls. You don't want to walk your children down the streets. But here Paul has been for three years planting a church. For three years, Paul has been immersing himself, swimming in that culture Three years of forming, rebuking, and then reforming the church to be able to stand and proclaim the good news to both Jews and Gentiles, as, as verse 10 of chapter 19 tells us. And you don't want to take religious fanaticism lightly here in Ephesus. 
Verses 11 through 20 in chapter 19 show us seven brothers, and it shows them what happens when you just presume that you're coming up against light efforts of spirituality and systems and not dark, demonic powers beyond mere flesh and blood. (laughs) It's a good chapter leading into Halloween, I think. A demonic beatdown happens. But for our purposes here today, I want us to focus on what happens next. What happens when the integrity and the values of the church come up against the dark forces, the big enemy of Ephesus? We're gonna pick up chapter 19 of Acts, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's the followers of Jesus. They were being called the people of the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Now, since we're not primarily focusing here on this passage, I'm going to take a little liberty to both summarize and then read through part of it. As always, I would love it if you would choose to take this a little bit deeper on your own. Read Acts 19 on your own a little bit more this week. But for this part, Paul has apparently not just begun a church plant in Vegas, Ephesus. Slip of the tongue. In Ephesus and almost all of Asia, he has persuaded people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He is teaching truth unapologetically to the culture, as should we. But I want us to note the word use there persuaded, not attacked, argued, or railed against, reasoned, using sustained influence and convincing. Sustained influence and convincing. You can't do that if you're merely crusading or an isolationist, a separatist persuading, convincing, influencing. Let's keep going. After Demetrius makes his case to the people, Ephesus erupts. This is mayhem in Vegas. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Okay, I understand Paul's friends and fellow disciples not allowing him to put himself in that theater with the mob. But the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, 
These were chief officers loyal to the Roman rule. They had the responsibility of seeing that religious services, games, and festivals were all properly honoring and celebrating the Roman Empire. These are pagan priests. You can't have friends like that if you're crusading or an isolationist. One more fast-forward point here. Verse 35, Ephesus now has swollen to a full-blown mob, thousands strong. And the town clerk steps up and says, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the great city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, just because a town clerk says it doesn't make it true. I don't know how much I believe that Paul, and by extension, people of the church, are not saying anything against their goddess. Or at least they're not publicly trying to make that case. Or at least they're not known for primarily making that case. But irregardless, when even a mob tries to come after Paul and the people of the church, we see the people of the community stepping in between them and crying out, these people have done nothing to justify this commotion. You can't have a relationship with the community around you like that. You can't elicit backup like that if you're crusading or an isolationist. Now, in no way am I advocating conformity to all aspects of society without unapologetic truth or enabling society. I don't think you can make that case in what we see here in Ephesus. I am proposing that the surpassing, indefendable, effective ways that the church can be counterculturally living with the world around us is by being a bridge, is by being involved in culture, in secular spaces. Maybe even if you're as clever and effective as Paul, by being a friend. Well, that just sounds weak, Pastor. Be a friend, be involved. You want to call Paul weak face to face when you get to heaven? <laughs> I see a man that has persuaded an entire continent. Who are we persuading? Not who are we trying to persuade or wish we could persuade. Who are we persuading? In Paul, I see a man that is strong enough to have friends in high places even when they know his different unapologetic beliefs. 
what friendships do we have even when they know our different unapologetic beliefs? I see a movement that rerouted an entire economy to the point that it started a mob. What economies are we rerouting? See, Paul and the church were not just looking for a fight. So many people today are just looking for a fight. Paul and the church were not just looking for a fight. They were looking for a victory. They knew the way that this happens is by being involved. From the inside out, this is the coming of the kingdom. This is the ways that the kingdom takes on the biggest bullies in the world and reroutes their economies and changes their value system and persuades a great many people, not just in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, the words of Demetrius, not just mine. Jesus taught, as we read in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom is not just here or there, in that established place or where these values are. The kingdom is among you, in you, from the inside out. That is the same kingdom that Jesus is launching as he walks through Jerusalem in his final days. And the religious leaders want him out. And they want his influence cut off. So does every state and culture and life that withholds from God what belongs to God. To what extent is that you? To what extent is that you? I want to do a little bit of a Bible blitz here. And if at the end of this, you still feel like you don't owe God anything, that's fine. But I doubt it. Maybe just listen to this or keep your eyes on the screens and watch what God has to say. Media team, you guys ready? <laughs> you were created in God's image, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image, amago, likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Your life is not your own. Jeremiah 10, 23, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus was God's payment. 1 Peter 1, 19. You were bought with the precious blood of the death of Christ, who was like a pure and perfect lamb. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So give to God what is God's. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Hebrews eleven six. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Church, give to God what belongs to God. Can you justify withholding anything from him? Is there any piece of your life that is better you holding on to it than him? Give to God what belongs to God. So with so many distinct faith journeys represented here, I want to invite us to have some space to simply reflect on that. Not just railing or judging a culture outside, but to what extent in my life have I refused to give to God what belongs to him? He has a claim on me, all of me. Is there any part of my life, my my church participation, my giving, my volunteering, getting engaged in missions or or foster efforts or, or the kindness that I do or don't have towards others? Temptation in my life, civic participation. Is there any part of my life that God has made a claim on? And today I need to surrender it over to him. We're gonna have a verse on the screens that just helps us process that. And I wanna provide some space for us to reflect. The verse is this, Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus, make it clear what you have claims on over our life that we need to give back to you. our souls. For those of us that know that there's a need, there's an aspect of our life, there's something you're calling us to, to surrender over to you. Would you help us take action today? Church, I'm going to invite you in a moment here to, if that's you, if there's some part of your life that you need to surrender over to God, to give to God what belongs to God, I'm gonna invite you right now to stand. Stand if there is some peace, some worry, some anxiety, some plan, some hope, some obedience that you need to say, God, I've held on to this myself. It's better in your hands. If that's you, I want you to stand right now and I wanna pray over you. God, this is me. This is my friends here saying, this thing that you have put your claim on, your likeness on, 
Help these people, these souls, surrender to you what is yours. I thank you for this call, this action that people have taken saying, I know what it is that you have made clear, God, and it's yours. Right here, right in this moment, surrounded by church family, I give over to God what is belonging to God. And the church around these people standing says, amen. Thank you, God, for moving in lives and hearts like this. Help them, strengthen them. Let them know that you reward those that seek your heart. Yes, amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities and much more, visit timberlinechurch.org slash connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.